it's November and it starts to get colder and colder and we start to pull out our winter things. So today I pulled out everything and folded it all again and decided which things I wouldn't use in the next few months and which I would. And then I put them all back in the drawers in a different order so that the summery cotton shirts were in the back and the woolly ones were in the front. So it should all fit nicely. And every single thing was given to me by someone. So they all tell a story. And it reminded me of all these years that I've been living this way with things that are there just for coolness or for warmth. They're not for fashion. They're not for beauty. They're not to decorate the body and make it attractive. But they're so precious and the fewer things that we have, the more precious they are. So, you know, I, of course I have a favorite shirt and a favorite pair of socks and all this kind of stuff. But really they're all basically functional. And this is all due to the fact that I chose simplicity. Choosing simplicity doesn't only mean that one has very little to wear or doesn't keep much. In fact, by most standards, I probably have more than most people because I've been doing this for a long time and I don't like to throw anything out. So, just like I did in my life, even though something was old and tatty, I'd hold on to it and get as much use as I could out of it until it pretty much fell apart. And I realized that it's very hard for us in the world to see the joy of simplicity because the world is so complex. And we're always being given messages from every direction to be complex and to gather more things around us and to get rid of the stuff that's a bit thin around the edges or a seam is undone. Retire it and get something new. And so we become surrounded by our things and eventually we get to a point where we have to have a bigger place to keep all our things or we get crowded out by them and they begin to have us rather than we having them. And the complexity takes over in, in other ways too. There's of course the worry about how we look and whether or not we're keeping up with the fashions and the times and everything else. And here we are wearing robes and following a style that 
has been in use for more than 2,500 years. However, even in this, we can get very complex. And we can compare. You see somebody else whose robe is a nicer material. Or they've got better kind of socks. Somebody came in a few weeks ago wearing a brown down jacket. It was brown. And it looked just right. And the one that I had was kind of green. And immediately my mind went to, oh, I didn't know they made brown feather jackets like that. The next thing I knew, I was offered one when we went to Birkin Monastery, just like the one I had seen, except about four sizes bigger. You have to be careful what you think, or you might get it. We still operate from a place of pride, from a place of greed, and from a place of delusion, no matter how simple we choose to be. That's the truth of it. The monastery is like a mini laboratory of the world. And you come in and leave all your old stuff, you give it all away, and you start collecting things that they're one color and they can only be one style, very simple, no designs, uh, silk isn't so good, and shiny things don't work, and noisy things you'll find if you try to wear material that's very nylon-y, every time you walk it swooshes. And in a community, especially if you're tiptoeing out of the shrine room, people will complain. If they don't complain, their minds will be making comments. And you, you can feel it. You can almost hear it. So we still get caught up in very worldly things. Even though we've chosen to be simple on the outside. But it's not enough just to give up wearing certain style or having very little, being content with little, and living in a monastic form that is sometimes considered extremist and ascetic. But the mind doesn't become simple quickly and can make a problem even out of simplicity. And so... Our robes are meant to remind us, get up in the morning and you don't have to think what to wear. It's so easy. You just put on the same, few variations on the same theme. A sweater, hats and gloves and extra pairs of socks. And when the snow comes, you need a good pair of boots, etc., etc. And then there's the robe on top. The robe has to be tied in a certain way and you shouldn't step on it and it has to be worn even and if there's a hole in it the size of a bed bug you have to sew it up you you patch it in a certain way within a certain amount of time otherwise there's a procedure if you don't fix that hole, if you're not, supposing you don't check your robe regularly, and ten days pass, and then you 
you notice there's a little tiny hole the size of a bed bug. This is in the scripture, of course. Then you have to take that robe in front of another nun. You have to give it away and lose it. However, after going through a little procedure whereby you are forgiven for this careless act, it is her responsibility to return it to you, restore it to you, and you can then take ownership of it properly. And then you have to chant a certain formula over it to establish, re-establish ownership. So this makes the robe something very precious when there's so much that we have to remember about our relationship to it. It's not just any piece of cloth that you pick up and put on. And so it becomes a reminder each time we put it on of the Buddha himself and of the teaching and of the whole monastic form. Then if you find one day that you've actually had a hole, bigger than the hole of that bud, and the ten days went past and you didn't put a patch on it and you have to do this procedure, a certain kind of embarrassment arises. It's not a competition, but you have to face your peers. And every time we go a little bit astray or don't follow the rules properly, even these very minor things, picking up your lost robe or your lost requisites and bringing it in front of another person. So if she's junior to you, the whole thing is set up in a way that you're constantly having to let go a little bit of self, a little bit of pride. And that's very valuable. I remember once, this was in California many years ago, I was invited to a dana with the monk that was with me teaching. And then I left one of my robes at her home. And we returned to where we were staying. And of course, we have to be with our robes at dawn. That night, I always check at night to see where they are. I realized that my robe was on the other side of town. And I was panicking. How am I going to do this? There's no way that I can get it back before dawn. And it was a tremendous feeling of humiliation because there were no nuns around. It was only the monk. And I suppose there's this sense of you're supposed to be setting an example and just this feeling of humiliation and embarrassment to go and tell this monk, Bhante, what will happen? My robe is at so-and-so's house and I won't be able to be with it at dawn. Of course, he was much senior. He saw my distress and he was very compassionate. He said, Sister, don't worry. You can relinquish it in your mind. Just relinquish it. And then we'll organize to get it back. So it doesn't matter. Then in the morning you don't... Because if I'm not with it at dawn, it's lost and I have to go through this procedure. I felt that so compassionate. And I saw how much when you cling 
to the form and you cling to the, the way of doing things and you hold the standard so high that you end up beating yourself up with the standard, then that's the wrong use of the rule. And here was somebody older who had walked the path for many years and had learned some of the ins and outs by making mistakes and then being told by an elder, don't worry about it, you can do this. It was such a humbling thing. And I learned so many things about that simple little mistake or carelessness. Of course these things happen rather than judging myself. We do this all the time, not just with rules. It's happened at times when other people who have known my rule and told me basically how I should keep it. Once when I was trying to get on an airplane because my father was sick and I had to reach him very quickly. He was in the emergency and there was nobody who could pay the tax at the airport where I was changing planes. So the woman that took me to the airport said, well, don't worry about it. You can just forget about that rule and get on the plane. But I was stubborn and I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. My rule is not to handle money and I don't have a casual attitude to it. And so I found the stewardess who agreed to pay somebody at the airport who would then help me get to the next counter and pay the tax for me. And that's just how it, it happened. And it, it ended up that seven people were involved in transferring this $10 bill that she gave to the steward or the stewardess. But if I had just said, oh, well, it doesn't matter, you know, I can just confess. Of course, you can, you can just confess. But to make that extra effort, so there's a couple of things here. One of them is how we hold the rule, how we hold the things that are precious to us, our relationships, our ethical precepts, our values our things, our material things, how we use them and how they use us. When something is precious and you've made a commitment to it, then you take care of it. But if you take too much care of it to the point where you're obsessed, then it begins to rule you and you can no longer use it wisely. And in the same way, if you're too careless with it, you don't value it enough, then you don't hold it properly anymore. And it loses its value, in fact. It's a bit like how you spend time. Many people are too busy to come here and meditate with us. But we try to meditate every night. It's not like, well, no one's coming, so forget it. We can just do what we like. We've made a commitment to do this full time. But then if people don't make time in their lives to hold the thing that's precious and give it the priority, then you end up never making it. And you end up never getting to the thing that you love. And then there's a loss from that.
to be mindful and to be simple is not just about having a lot of rules, but I think the value of these robes being what we wear is that I find that it keeps me tied to doing the same thing over and over again, repeatedly. I have to always come back to wearing the same thing and doing the same thing with it. There's no variety in it, in and of itself. But the beauty of that is that you begin to look at what's going on in your mind and what your mind is craving. Instead of looking at the way our relationship to the sameness of what you're doing changes. Because in that we go deeper and we have to change. If everything around us is constantly changing according to our likes and dislikes, then it becomes almost impossible for us to see and watch from a vantage where we can observe the principles underlying our movement. It's only when we stop and are absolutely still that those truths get teased out of our experience. So repetition is very important. And simplicity forces us to repeat. Just like when we meditate. We don't do exotic things when we meditate. We don't breathe rapidly for five minutes and then slow for five minutes and then normal for five minutes. We just breathe and let the breath do its dance. And in that changingness that happens through our own stopping, we're doing the same thing over and over. It appears. But in fact, we become aware of an underlying change over which we have no control. And by observing it, we begin to learn the truth of what our mind is doing with conditions as they are rather than constantly trying to tinker with things to make them pleasant and, and to get rid of what's painful. I never had a problem with wearing the robe, but there were certainly times when I'd wake up in the morning, put on my robes and realize who I was going to have to sit next to at breakfast. And you have to face those people every day, again and again, even if you just had a row. There's no getting away. But then, when you have to sit down, if you, you have some conflict, maybe you don't say anything. It, it gets to a very subtle, refined level. And it's just greed, hatred, and delusion. It's just the ego wanting to be recognized, wanting to be special, wanting more attention than you're getting, or wanting no attention. Whatever you think it is that you want, you're going to make a problem out of it. And it usually becomes a problem for someone else who won't want what you want. This is just what happens in worldly life too. The silence of monastic life, the sameness and the simplicity is a powerful symbol for how meditation can work for us. In, in lay life, there isn't that kind of power to keep us, to stop us in our tracks and make us take responsibility for our suffering by not blaming conditions. So if I have to sit next to someone I don't like 
at mealtime, eventually after years and years of doing that, you forget why you didn't like that person or else you leave. Because if you're going to live together, you have to find a way to make peace. And by having to stay with the thing that you thought caused your suffering, you pretty soon find out that it didn't have anything to do with your suffering. The suffering is always in here. So it's not because the robes are the problem, the rules are the problem, the people you live with are the problem, the lack of something that you want is the problem. The problem is always how the mind holds things and our inability to stop with what's happening and hold it even though it's screaming at us. Listen to that scream and say, it's just a scream. It's not what I am. It's going to change. Eventually, it'll become a song. Or it'll become silent. And it can't hurt what I really am. So that, that teaching that we're not the conditioned, we're not the hateful thoughts, we're not the wanting mind, these are just the the comings and goings, the changingness of conditions in the mind, conditions in the body, conditions in life. So getting simple isn't about wearing only one color or shaving your head or, or fasting. It's more like fasting the mind, drying up all the exotic places that we send the mind to day in and day out so that we can escape painful things, painful situations, unpleasant encounters, hatreds, fears, depression, despair, worry, old traumas, disappointments. Or because we're caught up and obsessed with wanting something, wanting a relationship that we think will solve everything, or getting out of a relationship that we think by getting out of, that'll solve everything. Then there'll be something else to make us feel unhappy. To be humble in front of life, meditation is a powerful tool for that. As soon as we stop for any amount of time and watch the mind, we can just see the origin of our suffering and the extent of it. And that can be very enlightening. But certainly it's helpful to simplify our lives to start with simplifying on the outside and then slowly, slowly bring it in. Bring it into the mind and see how complex we really get because of our thoughts, our ideas, our attachments. Then there's the 
practice of gratitude. Even when we're losing, so-called losing in, in terms of the world, losing in terms of health, losing in terms of possessions or wealth or friends or someone wrote recently and said that she realized from the situation of maybe losing her eyesight how vulnerable she felt and what a great teaching that was when we're vulnerable but we spend our lives defending against that vulnerability and when we become simple the more simple the more helpless the more empty-handed we stand in front of the present moment when we're sitting and watching the breath rise and fall and seeing the weakness of the body or being aware of an illness, a sickness, a difficult situation, we can bring up sense of gratitude about the blessings that we do have. And that gratitude fills us in a way so that we're not really empty-handed, no matter what we lose. Even if we're dying, we come to understand that we're not empty-handed at all. We can be rich beyond measure, depending on the quality of the mind. If the quality of the mind has one tear in it, one little hole the size of a bed bug through which greed, hatred, or delusion can enter, then it's very difficult to experience that wealth, that sense of blessing, that goodness. 